You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Calling on you today to have a heart that is introspective, that you would be examining your own standing before God and essentially not be like Judas, who is, was full of pretentious hypocrisy. But I'll begin reading Matthew 26, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O oh, Father in heaven, we come and beg for the presence of God this morning as the word is preached and taught. Help us to have our hearts focused upon Christ. May he be raised high among us as worthy and as the Savior. Pray that all here would trust him more and trust ourselves less, that our hearts would truly be broken before the Lord, and that our sense of self-reliance would be gone and purged from us. We pray that our Lord Jesus would restore backsliders this morning and bring sinners into the kingdom of God and strengthen the church. Help us to have sober-minded hearts that reflect deeply on the things of Christ, that he may be all in all to us. Please help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. We're now deep into the Passover week, the Passion Week, the last week before the death of our Lord Jesus before his crucifixion. By this point in the Passover week, he has already been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And this is the Thursday evening before the crucifixion, which was on the Friday. So the crucifixion is now fast approaching within hours. So the disciples have prepared the Passover meal. They fetched the lamb and they brought it into the temple and they sacrificed it. And now it's been cooked and they're all gathering around the table, the 12 disciples and Jesus, to eat the Passover lamb. It's Thursday evening with the crucifixion to take place within hours. Christ is eating with his disciples, and as they are feasting on the Passover, 
he broaches the topic of his betrayal, specifically a betrayal at the hands of one of the men in the room. So what I'm going to do this morning is, number one, I'll describe the setting of this meal. Then I'm going to direct you to the need for self-examination as to your own standing before God. And I'm going to warn you about the dangers of pretentious hypocrisy. So be among those who self-examine. Don't be among the pretentious hypocrites. Really three points, the setting, the need for self-examination, and the warning of pretentious hypocrisy. Let's look first at the setting this morning. Let's look at the setting. It's the evening, verse 20 says, when it was evening, so it's evening, as I mentioned, it's late in the Thursday before the crucifixion. The crucifixion is on the Friday. They've killed the lamb, they've sacrificed it, and they're now eating it after it has been cooked. Verse 20 they reclined at the table. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So they're eating the Passover meal. The lamb was sacrificed in the afternoon. And the lamb, of course, that was sacrificed represents the Passover during the time of the Exodus. So for hundreds upon hundreds of years, the Hebrew people have been celebrating this Passover year in and year out to point back to the Exodus from Egypt. You remember they were slaves for many years in Egypt under the Egyptians, and God delivered them by His mighty hand through that Passover event. And what had happened many years before this meal is they sacrificed a lamb, they painted the lamb's blood above their doorways, and on the evening that they did that in Egypt, God passed over Egypt. And the families that had the blood of the lamb point, painted on their doorways, they, they were spared their firstborn son, but the families that didn't have the blood of the lamb painted on their doorways, the firstborn son in each family was killed by God. And so there was a great mourning in Egypt. God's people had put the blood of the lamb on their doorways, and, the, and their sons were spared, and the Egyptians pushed them out of the land so that the Hebrews were free from slavery, and they became free men after the Exodus. That was followed by a time of eating only unleavened bread, as I explained last week. The Exodus event points to the Lord Jesus, because He is the ultimate Lamb of God. It all finds its fulfillment in Him. His blood was shed so that if you are hidden under His blood, God's wrath will pass over you. But if you are not hidden under His blood, God's curse will fall on you and already is on you so that you will receive eternal damnation in hell for your sins. So this is evening. They're reclined at the table. They're eating the Passover feast, which points back to the Exodus and points forward to the death of Christ. And the meal would open with a time of prayer. And then the oldest son around the meal would, would ask the father... Why is this night distinguished from others nights and other nights? And then the father would explain what I just explained. 
The significance of the Passover, it points back to their exodus from Egypt. They were delivered by the blood of the Lamb. Then they would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. Then they would eat the Lamb. Then they would sing Psalm 115 through 118. So this is the scene. They're gathered for this annual celebration of the Passover. And we find here it's the evening. They're reclined at the table. And he's reclined at the table with the 12, according to verse 20. That is the 12 disciples. These are 12 men who have ministered together with Jesus. So there's 13 men in all, if you include Jesus. And they have come to know each other quite well over these last few years of ministering together. The list of the 12 is found in Matthew chapter 10. You have Simon Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and then finally Judas Iscariot, the traitor. These 12 men are gathered together with Jesus. At the table, they're eating together. This is a ragtag crew. A number of them were fishermen, so they were outdoorsmen. They earned their living by fishing in the outdoors on the lakes, on the Sea of Galilee, in northern Galilee. They were the, the, the Galilean area was, would have been considered the redneck area of Judea. So they were somewhat backwards as it com- compared to the people of Jerusalem. At least the people of Jerusalem would have perceived these outdoorsmen as backwards. You had Simon the Zealot was one of the disciples. That means that he was likely part of a revolutionary militia that was bent on overthrowing the Roman government. You had Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was with them. Tax collectors, you, you think of a tax collector, you think of someone who's behind a desk punching in numbers on a computer. That's not what a tax collector was. A tax collector in those days was more like a bookie. You didn't pay your taxes, he's the guy who'd show up at your door and bust your legs. That's a tax collector. And so this is Jesus' ragtag crew of disciples. This was a spirited group of men. There was, there was lots of personality in the room. The rednecks from Galilee comprised of former revolutionaries, fishermen, and tax collectors, among others. And I, I suspect the, the dinners, because they had known each other for three years by this point, they'd bonded, they'd forged friendships and relationships and trust with each other, Uh, They were a band of brothers in one sense. I suspect that there would have been a lot of spirited conversation. There would have been some jokes. There would have been some laughter. They would have talked about their master and and how their master, oh, you remember when Jesus said that to the Pharisees, guys? (laughs) And so these were good times. They'd eaten together many times. They'd seen Jesus' miracles. They'd suffered persecution together. Uh, They've been through quite a bit together. They traveled a lot together. They were with each other for three years. And so you know how it is when a group of guys get get together and um, and they start to form bonds and trust. And and these these guys had almost become like each other's family. And this was the setting. Around the dinner table, feasting together, laughing together, these merry, jolly men, hearty men with the Lord Jesus, 13 of them if you include Christ. That's the setting. Now, let's, let's talk about the need for self-examination. Moving on from this scene that I described, 
To provoke self-examination, Jesus interrupts them with a most startling statement. In verse 21, and truly, or and as they were eating, so you see they were eating, you could imagine them eating away and feasting away and enjoying themselves together. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Like talk about changing the mood of the dinner. You, you can imagine these men, is they're, is they're putting the, the, you know, the, the cooked lamb into their mouths. It's come right out of the oven right now, right? And the moist bread that's been dipped in all of their sauces, they're, they're putting it into their mouth, and then Jesus says that, and then it, the, the fork almost drops, and look up, what? What? This is the first they heard that. There's a sense of loss, there's a sense they're baffled, they're jolted, they're dazed. I mean, maybe at that very moment, it could be that they just stopped eating because they were so shocked by the news. They've been told that Jesus would be betrayed, but they've, now they're being told that Jesus would be betrayed by one of them, one of the brothers who'd come to know each other. There was somebody at the table who was a traitor. Somebody who was laughing with them. Somebody who was telling jokes with them. Somebody who was reminiscing of years gone by with them was a traitor. I think it's likely, likely that if they had their mugs in their hands and they're about to drink, it, it just dropped and the fork just dropped and there was probably silence and Jesus all of a sudden had command of the room again and he had all of their attention with this shocking statement. The eating likely stopped and their ears perked. In his statement that Jesus makes in verse 21, he starts with the word truly, which emphasizes the veracity of the statement. So this is a sobering statement. And then he says, one of you will betray me. One of you sitting there, he says, will betray me. The word betray there comes from the same root as the word that occurs in verse 2. If you move up where Jesus says the Son of Man will be delivered, that could be also translated betrayed. If you go up to verse 15 or down to verse 15, depending where you are in chapter 26, Jesus said, and what will you give me, or sorry, and Judah said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There you again, there's that word betray from the same root. And so this has been teased out for us for a while now. We know that there's a betrayal coming. And in fact, from our vantage point, the, the account has been narrated to us by Matthew, and Matthew has already called Judas the one who would betray Jesus. But from the vantage point of the disciples, they're still in the dark. They don't know. And now they know. But they don't know who. And so you could sense their hearts drop, their stomachs turn, the oxygen almost leaves the room. The, the merriment of the dinner stops. This provokes sorrow. Verse 22, it says, and they were sorrowful. Well, actually it says, and they were very sorrowful. It's described, there's an adverb there, meaning very much greatly extremely, this is all understandable, somebody among us is going to betray the Lord? 
Is it enough that our Lord is going to be handed over to the authorities, but now it's one of us? What a terrible thing to hear. And each begins to ask the question in verse 22. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, look at one after another. You see that? Is it I, Lord? So you could see them. They're going around the table. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Everyone looks up. Is it I, Lord? 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 Like, like literally around the table, each man is asking this question of Jesus, is it I? And I think one of the most beautiful things about this picture is, is, is the trust that's in the room amongst the camaraderie of men because they don't suspect each other, they suspect themselves. This is how much trust and love has developed among these men. It's quite the precious thing because, because it's not like they're looking over at the guy next to him saying, is it him? Their initial act is to trust the men beside them more than they trust themselves. This tells you the level of love, the bond that's taken place, the sense of camaraderie that these men now have with each other, and I suspect it may have something to do with the rebuke that occurred in chapter 26, verse 10 through 12, when they were kind of picking on that woman who anointed Jesus with the alabaster jar. Jesus rebuked them, and now they're, they're questioning their own judgment. Either way, they're questioning their own judgment. Their, their own judgment is being questioned. And this should be your reaction when you come to a text like this. What I'm calling from Scripture for a sober reflection in your own heart. I'm not calling for you to look around saying, oh, I'm glad so-and-so heard that sermon, or I wish so-and-so heard that, heard that sermon. What needs to happen is your heart is, I'm sure glad I heard that sermon, and is it me? Am I the one? Am I the traitor? Not the person next to me, is it me? Who, who's the traitor? And if it's anyone, oh, God, is it me? And you find that when you develop this healthy distrust of your own ability to be faithful, this is when you actually start to blossom and flourish as a Christian because they've now come to Jesus with these broken hearts. Their self-confidence has been depleted. We've had several generations in this country now that have been raised on this whole, you've got to teach your kids to have self-confidence. Hadn't done them any good because everybody's confident, but they can't really do a whole lot. But what these people do is they come to Jesus, these 12, or the 11 at least, they come to Jesus, and they're completely shattered before him. And their first question is, is it me? This is the meekness, the tenderness that the Lord blesses. This is the sweetness that comes out of the Christian. When we learn to distrust ourselves and we take our distrust, not to some morbid introspection, but we take our distrust and what do we do? We cast ourselves upon the Lord. Is it I, Lord? Right, you see what they're doing? There's not just a distrust in them, but there is a going to Jesus with the question. By the way, is a point of, Advice, you'll find that when you're fighting a specific sin, 
So if you have a sin in your life that's besetting and it keeps coming back and you're dealing with it, some of you might have this, you'll find that when you're fighting a specific sin, it's the moment that you think you've mastered it that it comes back to bite you. Every time. The, the moment that you think you've got this thing under control, you've got it licked, and your self-confidence is up, that's the moment it comes back to bite you because there's not, in that moment, there's not a sense of reliance upon God. Every day, you should be waking up in the morning, going to Jesus. Is it I, Lord? Oh, please give me grace, Lord. This is the brokenness, the sweetness that should pour out of the heart of the Christian that's been convicted of his own sin. Self-confidence before God will destroy your soul. Destroys people. Instead of being self-confidence, they turn to Jesus. Is it I, Lord, they ask? Is it I? This should be you when you're faced with temptations and trials. If you go to Jesus, what happens is, every day if you go to Jesus, what happens is He is your strength. Everything is Him. It's not you. How am I going to get through today and honor the Lord? How am I going to get through this trial? How am I going to get through this season I'm going through? It's all the Lord Jesus. You're, you're basically throwing yourself on Jesus every day, away from your self-confidence, away from your self-reliance. Everything is dependent upon Jesus. Like some people will make mistakes, right? They'll, well, the, the mistake they'll make is, is they'll be convicted of, of sin or questions like this will be asked. Are you one of the traitors? And you say, of course I'm not. I'm a great Christian. But a sign of, 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 of course I can resist the persecution. Of course I can resist the scorn of men. But a sign of humility and brokenness and trust in the Lord is when this self-confidence is completely depleted. There's nothing left as far as your own strength. You become like Jacob in the Old Testament who, who wrestled with God. And after his wrestling with God, he walked with a limp because now he has to be fully dependent upon God. He had to learn not to rest on the arm of the flesh but to walk closely with the Lord, and that's where the strength is going to come from. You see, I, I fear that so many think that the Christian life is having some type of intellectual knowledge of God, a level of acceptable orthodoxy. I believe the right things, I have the right doctrinal statements, and I even have an experience with Jesus Christ. And so many have boiled their Christian existence down to that, but with the Christian existence is, it's a Daily depletion of self so that you're coming to God and you're full of Christ. And He becomes your all in all. And so, so Jesus asks, Jesus makes the statement, He says, One of you will betray me. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And their reaction initially is not, Not me, Lord. The reaction is not, What about this guy, Lord? The reaction is, Is it I? Because they've now understood the frailty of their own hearts. This is a, this is a high point of their discipleship. A few, few verses ago, the, there was a low point. But here we have some, some maturity and some sanctification that has happened in their lives. There's so much application in this, by the way. 
Whether it comes to your marriage, whether it comes to your parenting. You know, one of the, the greatest things you can do as a parent is daily cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. I'm not fit for this. How can I raise these children in this godless, dark, satanic world? But then you go to the Lord Jesus and, and you beg Him for mercy. Oh, God, help me. Oh, how I need the Lord. Oh, how I need Jesus. And so He becomes your strength. And, and by the way, their self-doubt that's expressed here, and you should have doubt in your own ability. You should have no doubt in, your, in Jesus Christ, but you should have doubt in your own ability. You go to Jesus for your assurance. You go to Jesus for your salvation. You go to Jesus for your sanctification. Instead of being self-confident, they turn to Christ and they say, is it I, Lord? And I think so many what they would do in a situation like this is they wouldn't turn to Christ and ask Him if it is I. They would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to muster up some inner strength to fight this so it's not me. But that's not them. That, that's a problem if that's your reaction. If your reaction is, is I'm, I'm going to tighten my bootlaces a little more and pull up my socks a little more, and I'm going to just try a little harder as a Christian, that you're, you're missing the point here. The point is, is you're coming to Christ broken. I've got nothing to offer, and if, if it weren't for God, I would, have, I would have fallen away many years ago. I wouldn't have been a Christian for more than 10 seconds if it wasn't for God. And look at how Jesus interacts with them. This is also instructive to us as we talk about this need for self-examination. He doesn't answer their question. There's only one man he answers, it's Judas. He doesn't answer their questions. They go around a table, 11 men ask, is it I, Lord? Instead, what he does is he lets it linger more, and he forces the issue even further. Verse 23, this is how he answers. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So you've got to understand, like they have this sauce, I think it's pronounced a karoseth sauce at the Passover meal. It's composed of figs, nuts, almonds, other fruit, apples, vinegar, spices. And what they would do is they would dip their bread and bitter herbs in it. And the sauce is, is in a common dish. And, and the, the, they're sharing the dish together. It's being passed around. I've always, if I have a, a feast, I always like it when you pass the dish around, because what you're doing is you're sharing. There's a mutual interaction that's going as you share the dish, right? Well, here's the dish of carrots, and here's the loaf, and whatever. And they're sharing a dish of, of sauce that they would dip their bread in. And, and so every man would have dipped his bread in the sauce. Every man in the table, so what, he, what does he say? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He doesn't answer them directly. It's not like Simon comes up to him and says, is it I, Lord? And he says, no, it's not you. Or Matthew says, is it I, Lord? No, he doesn't do that. He just lets it linger even more. He doesn't try to relieve the discomfort, the awkwardness. 
He doesn't try to cure the the self-doubt that has now moved into the room. He actually forces even more of it. And the the fact that they're eating together adds to the sense of betrayal because Psalm 41 verse 9 says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There's something about betraying someone that you share food with. And especially in a culture of hospitality, he doesn't answer them. He lets them sit in their self-doubt to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And and what some would do, I fear, is is someone would come and they would say, maybe someone would come and say, well, I I doubt it. Am I really born again? And some would say, well, of course you are. Don't you remember that time you went forward at church? Or don't you remember that time where where you prayed the sinner's prayer? Or don't you remember that time where you felt and experienced Jesus? So many would do this to relieve the sense of self-doubt, but that's not what Jesus does. He he pushes the point even more. And I think this is instructive as you deal with people, even as you deal with your own children who are questioning whether or not they're saved because Mother Hen wants to come in and relieve the discomfort. Oh, of course that's not you. I, I really believe you were born again at that particular point in time. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't want to rush in and relieve the discomfort. He lets them deal with God instead of offering them anything at this point. He's doing them a favor by not identifying Judas. And this is how we should handle these things. If you come to me after the service and you say, I wonder whether I'm I'm really born again, well, I would, I would point you to Christ. I'd say, you're, I can't offer you more assurance than what the Lord has offered you. And you have to learn to rest on the promises of His Word and walk closely with Him. And from that, your assurance will come. But if your assurance is coming from your own experiences or from what somebody has said to them out of their own experiences, then now you have a problem. But you must go to Christ with these things. And so he doesn't identify the traitor publicly. He just answers them by saying, no, there'll be someone around this table who dips in the dish with me. And, and then he carries on in verse 24, and he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So this is referring to the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53, verse 11 and 12, which says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall... See and be satisfied by his knowledge. He shall be the righteous one, or shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's pointing back to the Old Testament, speaking of the death of the Messiah. It was all part of God's decree. It was all part of God's plan. And and so in Jesus saying that, as as we're talking about this need for self-examination, just to make the theological point, that this is that Judas bears full responsibility for his sin, but yet Jesus is in full control of the situation. God has decreed all of this. So you have what theologians have termed divine concurrence, where two things are happening at one point in time. At one point in time, God's decree, his immutable decree is being fulfilled, and Judas is acting by his own will. How that plays together should be a mystery to us. But both are occurring. Judas isn't off the hook just because God decreed this. 
And God doesn't bear the responsibility for Judas' sin just because he decreed it. I don't know how this works, but it's a mystery. Some of you will come and you'll say, well, that's, I don't understand that. Can you explain that to me? And say, well, I don't know. God's infinite. You were in diapers only a few decades ago, probably. So we're not going to understand the mind of God. But this is how it works. And then look at what Jesus says. He, he presses the point even more. There's no relief to these men, at least in Matthew's account. Verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. There's that word again, betrayed. But look at that word, woe. Don't you remember the seven woes upon the Pharisees, the religious leaders? This means the, the curse of God abides upon him. There is damnation coming down on this man. He is, he is he's cast out from the presence of the goodness of God, and he will, he will pay the price for what he has done. And then, and then Jesus says, it would be better if he hadn't even been born. If you'd not been born, verse 24. So the blessing of life now becomes to the person who betrays the Lord to the traitor, it becomes itself a curse. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is saying every blessing in your life, if you become a traitor to Jesus Christ, will become a curse. The day of your conception and the day of your birth, which should have been a blessing to you, is now a curse to you because you're a traitor to Jesus. Now, some wonder whether Judas was sent to hell. I think this answers it. There ought to be no doubt in your mind that Judas is in hell. He was a complete reprobate. He never repented. He was the son of perdition, the son of damnation. And so he's burning in hell right now as we speak because Jesus said it would be better if he hadn't been born. Do you want to be like a Judas or do you want to be like one of these disciples? And I think what you ought to be doing is I ought to be forcing the question in your heart where you're, where you're becoming empty of you. Your self-confidence is, is leaving like the sun burns up the morning dew. And, what you're, and what's going on is you're throwing yourself on Jesus as your only hope. I hope you don't come to leave church on Sunday thinking, I'm going to make this happen. I hope you come completely emptied of reliance upon you and you know that Jesus is your only hope. This is hard for some people. But he is your only hope. This sense of introspection that Jesus forces here, unlike the disciples who had a healthy distrust of themselves at this point in time, we have to move on in our text to look at Judas, who was a vile hypocrite. Don't be a Judas. Don't be like him. Don't be a pretentious hypocrite. We have the call to self-introspection, self-examination that brings you to Jesus, but then you have this pretentious hypocrite in Judas. The absence of a self-examination, the absence of an emptiness of self often produces this deplorable state of hypocrisy. So if you don't want to be a traitor like Judas, you need to be in this place of sober-minded emptiness where your only hope is Jesus Christ. He's your only hope for salvation. He's your only hope for sanctification. He's your only hope for your own faithfulness. It's to be depending upon him moment by moment by moment. To not be this pretentious hypocrite. 
And so Judas asks the exact same question as the other disciples in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Now, there's one little difference. The disciples say, is it I, Lord? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? But essentially, it's the same. Some believe that the title Rabbi is even more honorable than the title Lord. So Judas might even be trying to outdo them in flattery here by calling him Rabbi. But look at Judas sounds the exact same way as the other disciples, but he's sitting there in the room with all of his buddies that he's had for three years, and he's got probably the 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. And he asks the question, is it I, Lord? He's at least received the 30 pieces of silver by now, and I think it's very likely that they're on his person, and he knows it's him. He knows the answer to this question, but he so wants to fit in and look like another disciple. He knows that Jesus knows. Jesus tells him. But he wants to look like the other Christians in the room. He wants to speak like the other Christians in the room. He wants to sound like the other Christians in the room. He wants to save face in this moment. And so he just, to blend in, basically asks the same question, is it I? So now you've got 12 to do the exact same thing, eating at the exact same time with their Lord. Is it I? Well, Jesus does him a favor. He's the only one he answers directly at this point in time. He does Judas a very good favor. Judas, verse 25, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Lord? He said to him, Jesus said to him, You have said so. Essentially, yes, it is. He doesn't answer the others. He lets them sit in their question. And I suspect the way this is happening, I suspect the others didn't hear this answer. Otherwise, they may have reacted and done something. But Jesus Jesus let Judas know this is an act of grace to Judas. It's an act of mercy. It was one last opportunity to get off the highway. Okay, it's one last opportunity to get off the train. The, the train's moving forward, right, down the track, and Jesus says, yes, it's you, it is so, it is as you say, as you say, and there's one more stop for Judas that he can a- exit the train. Jesus just opened the door for him. You have said so. It's an act of mercy on the part of Jesus Christ, even though he already, Jesus knows that Judas has the 30 pieces of silver likely on his person, Jesus still gives grace. What about you? Is there someone in this room today who is on the track to destruction, who is on the track to apostasy, who is a traitor, who's planning treason against the Lord? There is deep sin in your heart, and you don't want to let that sin go, and you're moving towards it, and you're moving down the track. What about you? Is there something you've planned out? Is there something dark and dirty that you're looking forward to? I don't know. I could name a hundred different sins if I want to. But if the Lord is poking at your heart right now, that's Jesus saying to you, yes, it's you. Get off the train. Make the exit. Don't be like Judas because he never made the exit. One last shot this man had. And he wouldn't take it. 
And if the Lord Jesus is prodding your heart right now, he's saying the same thing to you. It's one more act of mercy, and I don't know how many more hours you have. I don't know how many more minutes you have. But act now. Throw the 30 pieces of silver on the table now. Make it known now. Don't delay now. Come clean. Jesus knows. Oh, he knows. Maybe God's given you this last opportunity today. Are you too proud? I suspect Judas was too proud. He didn't want to face the religious leaders that he made this dirty deal with. And he certainly didn't want to, he wanted to save face in front of Jesus, in front of the disciples, so he didn't come clean. But his pride led him to hell. Maybe you're too entitled. I think Judas was likely entitled. He deserved better than what he thought Jesus was giving him. He hadn't seen the full reward of his commitment to the kingdom yet. And so there was a sense of entitlement. I deserve this 30 pieces of silver. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, boy, I've had a hard life. I deserve this little bit of pleasure. This little morsel of sin under my tongue. The sweetness of the taste of sin. Maybe you deserve it. You think you deserve it? Because Judas, I think, thought he deserved it. So he doesn't come clean. He holds on. He cherishes those 30 pieces of silver. Don't be like Judas and don't cherish the 30 pieces of silver. Throw them on the table today. Drop it now. Leave it. Or maybe you're too greedy. Maybe you're too greedy. I suspect Judas was greedy. Those 30 pieces of silver were burning a hole in his pocket. But you see how, how kind Jesus is to this traitor? To offer him one more chance? And if he's this kind to this traitor, he's being this kind to you, if this is you. He's giving you another opportunity. Charles Spurgeon said, a man may get very near to Christ. He may dip his hand in the same dish with the Savior and yet betray him. Don't be a Judas. Go to Jesus. There's blood that is shed for you. There's blood that will cover all of your sins. There's blood that will forgive all of your sins. There's an atonement that was made for you on Calvary's cross where Christ died for sinners. But the hypocrites will burn in the lake of fire. The guilty conceal their crimes, but God's people have tender hearts that provoke them not towards morbid introspection, but towards an introspection that rids them of any sense of self-reliance so they only have Jesus Christ to rely on. And if you're confronted with error, the good way is to let me think about that, O oh Lord. Won't you search me, dear God? Won't you help me, dear God? Won't you investigate my heart and help me to understand, dear God? The bad way to deal with it is, no way, that's not me, and just try and fit in and pretend like you're the rest of the people. The disciple is apt to self-examination and welcomes the confrontation of Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. But the hypocrite, the Judas, has his hypocritical guard up in an instant and just wants, it's enough for him just to be perceived as a Christian. Let Jesus Christ search your heart. And if there's 30 pieces of silver in there, come clean today. And don't be a Judas. Go to the Lord and throw yourself upon the mercy of a tender Savior who even offered 
an exit to a traitor who was on a highway to hell. 